Welcome to The GAC Files, a podcast about the people, issues, and ideas driving Global Affairs Canada. Bienvenue dans les dossiers d'AMC, un balado sur les personnes, les défis et les idées qui animent Affaires mondiales Canada. And now, introducing your host, Global Affairs Canada's David Morrison. Et maintenant, présentant votre hôte, David Morrison, d'Affaires mondiales Canada. Deborah Chatsis has had a foreign service career spanning nearly 30 years. She has had seven postings, the final two as ambassador, first to Vietnam and then to Guatemala. She was through Ottawa recently and stopped by my office to talk about her career, her identity as an Indigenous woman, and what she has learned in the face of personal challenges. Hey Deborah, thanks for coming by. It's always great to see you. We have so much to talk about. We started in the Foreign Service at roughly the same time. I recall you were a reasonably freshly minted lawyer. Um, You were in the social affairs stream, which was sort of euphemistic for being an immigration officer, but but, uh, there used to be a joint recruitment. You switched to the political stream, which was very rare. I know you have some multilateral experience. You've been a HOM a couple of times over. You are an Indigenous woman, which is rare enough in the department today, but was unheard of back when we joined almost. And you're a person of remarkable resilience. Um, Let's start at the beginning, growing up in Saskatchewan. Yes, well, my family, my parents' families were from Saskatchewan. My father was from Palmaker First Nation near North Paddleford, and my mother was from Ataka Group, which is near Prince Albert. So that's kind of central north? Central, central Saskatchewan, yeah. My father joined the military and eventually ended up in Chilliwack, and my mother met him there. So I was born in Chilliwack while he was in the Army, and then afterwards we moved to the interior of B.C., Eventually, we moved to Saskatchewan when I was the end of grade four mm. and uh, lived in North Battleford for a bit, but mostly Prince Albert. Uh, so that's where I, I went to junior high school and high school and ended up back there, and that's where I'm living now. Okay. In, 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 Prince Albert. in Prince Albert. Yes. What was it like back then when you were, were growing up? How how big? Prince Albert's not not a huge city. At the time, I think there were about 30,000 people, and right now... There's a hockey town. There's a junior hockey town. Yes, Prince Albert Raiders are a big thing there. Uh, I think right now there's about 35 or 36,000. At the time, it was, you know, your kind of typical prairie town, uh, fairly homogenous, fairly white. Mm. Um, Did, Did you stick out? Yeah, fairly. We stuck out. There weren't that many Indigenous students. In the high school I went to, because it was a small Catholic school, the larger high school had a few more, uh, because the students from the north would come down and finish high school in Prince Albert. But uh, it was fairly homogenous. So it's interesting going back now, Mm. because I think the city is, well, much like other parts of Saskatchewan, it's much more diverse. Yeah. You can really see the changes in the demographics. And that's been 
30, 30, 40 years, there have been real changes. The, I was in Alberta last week on vacation, and certainly the f face of rural Alberta has become, has, is totally different yeah. than it was. It was 100% white when I was growing up. It is, uh, it is South Asian, it is African, it is, uh, it is Filipina, Filipino. Um, uh, very, very striking changes. Anyhow, you, you have some s siblings. Yes, uh, yes. And uh, so you were a family of how many? Uh, well, I have a sister, two sisters and a brother. So an okay. older sister lives in Prince Albert. Uh, my brother and my other sister live in Regina with their families. And so, and so young Deborah somehow went off to conquer the world. Yes. Ha, and your, your, the rest of your siblings chose Saskatchewan. Yes. I always wanted to travel when I was a kid growing up. And I think it, it goes back to my parents who lived in Europe. When my father was in the Army, he was stationed in Germany for oh, a couple okay. of years. So I grew up and there was, you know, his army drunk filled with mementos from Europe. So because of that, I always wanted to travel both in Canada and in Europe and elsewhere. When I was in university, I actually started off studying engineering um, because I was strong in maths and mm. sciences, but then switched to law. Um, Did you ever intend to practice? As a lawyer? Yeah. I did. Because I had the engineering degree and the law degree, I was kind of going the, down this track to work in the area of intellectual property. So I did that for a bit. But I just realized at a certain point that I wanted to work overseas. I mm -hmm. wanted to, to mm -hmm. do something different and work for the government. So I took the Foreign Service exam and entered at the end of 89. Yeah. We were, we were only months apart. You were in social affairs. So that is, I guess it doesn't exist anymore, but it, there is obviously still an FS cohort in IRCC, and that, that was your home department. Yes, yeah. For, from November 89 until the summer of 94, I worked as a visa officer four years overseas. I did two and a half in Beijing a year in Bogota and slightly less than a year in Miami mm. doing various jobs. The one in Beijing was a, strictly a visa officer. I did visa and consular at the time. And in um, Bogota and Miami, I did what is called, uh, it's an enforcement officer. Mm. It's a regional job mm. working with airlines and immigration mm. authorities. And then you be Joined the legal bureau I did. here in uh, here at uh, I guess what was then DFATE. Yes, yeah, I can't remember the acronym <laughs> at the time. It was incredibly long. Yeah. Um, yeah, I worked there for four years. I worked in the what's now I think the UN law mm. area. I did international humanitarian law and human rights law. Right. So I did that for four years. After that, I went to Geneva. For four years, I worked at our mission to the UN in the area of human rights. And then in 2002, I went to New York. Yeah. Where, where we crossed yes. paths uh, again. Um, you told me just before we went on air, you've had seven postings yes. um, 
uh, in all. I think that may be a record in terms of GAC files uh, guess. Um, anything, so a couple multilateral, you've been home a couple times. Anything stick out in particular? Favorite posting, place you learned the most? Um, I think um, Beijing will always be a favorite because it was my first posting and it was a I think a very interesting time to be there when the country's opening and there's lots of... It, it was actually not very long after Tiananmen. Yeah, it was a year after. Yeah. So it was a tough job because we had a lot of... There was a lot of work in the visa section, um, dealing with family reunification, getting getting the families to Canada. Mm. Um, so that was a tough job, but it was a really interesting place to live, and, and I enjoyed it. I loved Vietnam. Uh, where, where, where you were home? Yes, I was there for three years, from 2010 to 2013. It's um, it's a beautiful country, and people are wonderful. And it was great because it was my first time as home, and it was really it was exciting, and I learned a lot. I really enjoyed it. And I had a great team there. Uh, the highlight of my time was the visit by the governor general, the <laughs> former governor general. It was his first first trip overseas. So it was really exciting. And I really enjoyed my time in Guatemala. Sure. It, I think it's probably the, the job where I learned the most mm. because it, it's not the easiest place to live, but it's an interesting place to yes. work. There's lots of political issues. Uh, there were some trade issues. And I was not only responsible for kind of the basic, you know, political trade, admin, consular, but I was also responsible for the development program. Right. So that was really fascinating, and I learned a lot. You, you of course, <laughs> will recall very well how you ended up in, in, in Guatemala. And for listeners, um, the process for HOM nominations is sometimes less scientific than we would like to make out. We needed a... Um, I was ADM Americas at the time, and the deck had been shuffled, and suddenly there was an opening in, in Guatemala, and we thought of uh, Deborah, and I was designated to make the call, and Deborah was not, you know, on A4 or whatever. She happened to be traveling somewhere in Asia. I was in Pakistan. In Pakistan. So I reached her and said, Hey, Deborah, it's David. How would you like to be ambassador to Guatemala? And she said, uh, I'll call you back tomorrow, <laughs> which she did and, and uh, thankfully accepted. And, yeah. and, th and then it, my recollection is it went very quickly. It did, yeah. yeah. Um, Guatemala is a place that is probably majority indigenous, population, which makes it perhaps together with Bolivia, uh, one of the highest percentages of indigenous population in the world. The fact that you are indigenous Canadian, um, how did that play as, as Canada's ambassador to Guatemala? Well, I think it was, it was a useful way for me to open conversations with people because I could, um, at times, share information about what was happening in Canada or what had happened, and then try to make the connections between the people in Guatemala and the people in Canada. Um, but 
but even at a personal level, I think people really appreciated it. I was um, traveling with some staff to go visit some development projects and Canada Fund projects. And we were at a, a small village with an indigenous population. And I was waiting to give my speech that my staff had prepared. And somebody from the UN spoke before me and made all of the points that I wanted to make. <laughs> I was like, oh God. <laughs> so I just put down the speech and I just started speaking to this group of like youngest students, they were mostly girls. And I said that, you know, I, I am indigenous, I come from a community in Saskatchewan and I understand some of the challenges that they have in, you know, in, in development, in the development of the community and some of the family and individual challenges. And it was really amazing just to see how much I connected. I could see mm. it from sure. the stage, how much I connected with the, the students and the community members as well. Mm. So that, that was nice to be able to do that. Did you have thoughts about the role that Canada uh, plays, which is already reasonably significant, but the role that it could play internationally on Indigenous issues? I think of, of the demand, frankly, throughout the Americas region for Canadian expertise in um, particularly in the extractive sector, but elsewhere on issues around uh, consultation and consent and, frankly, just economic development. Uh, we know we have uh, large challenges that remain here in Canada, but the rest of the hemisphere looks uh, up to Canada as a, as a uh, kind of model in um, terms of relations with Indigenous communities. So given your experience in the uh, Americas, do you have any thoughts? I think that that's really an area of Canadian expertise that really should be explored a bit more. I mean, I think we have to, have to find more ways of making those connections between Canada and Guatemala or other countries where there are Indigenous populations. Um, you mentioned the you know, some of the issues in the mining and extractive sector. Well, we, you know, I could go on about the work that we're doing on mm. corporate social responsibility, but two, two things come to mind. One, we brought down to Guatemala a fellow who has quite a bit of experience working in consultations, often working with indigenous groups in negotiation with the provinces or with the federal government. And so he was able to share his expertise, lessons learned. Um, and one thing that, that struck me was that, you know, we were talking about the consultations that were taking place in Guatemala, and they're incredibly complex, very difficult. But he made the point several times that in Canada, there are over 300 consultations going on at any one time. Mm. So there, you know, it just... I don't think that we can say we've found the solution, but I think that there are plenty of people, and not necessarily the federal government employees, mm. but other people who can who have an expertise that can be shared. We also brought down a woman who works in um, 
she works in, I think, New Brunswick or something, Nova Scotia, working with Indigenous groups on consultations. And she was fabulous because mm. she could talk about about the negotiations that she had been involved in, giving people, sharing those experiences, giving them tips on how to manage those types of consultations. Uh, there was another area that, that we focused on, um, and that was... Uh, indigenous legal systems because there was a concept proposal to amend the constitution in Guatemala and one of the most well, there were several proposals but the most controversial was to include a provision that recognized indigenous legal systems and it was really looking recognizing sort of existing traditional legal systems anyway so we brought down a lawyer from BC Mm. who spoke at a conference about about Canada's ex experience with putting him recognizing the indigenous legal system and and showing how it worked within the framework of the existing right. Canadian how it could coexist yeah. Yeah. yeah and it was really well received but that's something that really needs to be followed up on a continuous basis sure yeah, yeah it does it does in the it, at least in the Americas, which is the recent region that I mm. personally know best, there's a huge demand mm -hmm. for sharing lessons learned on on what we've uh, what we've gotten right. Um, tell me or tell us a little bit more about your identity as an indigenous woman within global affairs and its predecessor departments. I said at the beginning that it was. Uh, there are not a lot of indigenous women in this department. It was very rare, even more rare, when when you joined. W what are your reflections, twenty eight or thirty years later, about that part of your identity and and how that has shaped your experience at Global Affairs? Well, I would say it's always been. I mean, it's always been a part of who I am and. A part sure. of my identity. I mean, I I was saying that my father used to, to tell us all the time, you know, don't forget where you come from, mm. you know, meaning don't forget your community, your family, don't forget that you're from Saskatchewan, like right. that sort of thing. So me, it was, it was an important part of my identity, but it wasn't necessarily something that I pushed. Um, well, we we have a we have a much more acutely tuned sense yeah. of identity now than we did back then, personal identity, I would yeah. say. And I think it's, I think the situation now is, is different. Like, you know, the, the towns and the prairies have changed. I think Canada's changed. Mm. You know, the, the, you know one, of, one of the things that I've been advocating for a long time is that, you know, the, that the Foreign Service or the Canada's base abroad should be reflective of Canada. Mm. And the demographics of Canada are changing, both, you know, in terms of uh, the number of uh, Indigenous peoples in Canada, but also, you know, people's, people from, from other countries, other backgrounds, religions, etc. So it's funny, I was looking through my papers and I found some emails and papers that I had worked on probably maybe 15, 20 years ago you know, with personnel trying to encourage them to do more, to recruit, mm. not only to recruit Indigenous peoples, but to 
to look at ways to kind of maintain them because there have been a lot of people that have come in but they don't necessarily right. stay because it always at, at the department hasn't always been the most welcoming of diversity mm, mm, mm. so what did, what advice would you give to a young indigenous person uh, male or female that were considering that was considering joining the department today well i would say that they should consider the job because it's really you know apart from the issue of of identity i mean it's it's a fascinating, fascinating job yeah, yeah yeah i mean it's for me it's been a a great career i've been lucky enough that i've you know been on seven postings and had a mission twice uh, i've been able to do lots of work in the international area on in indigenous issues i when i was in geneva new york you know i was involved in negotiations on the declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples on establishing the permanent forum and you know other other mechanisms and so you know i think that there were things that i could bring to the table mm. as an indigenous person that perhaps some of my colleagues from other backgrounds couldn't bring mm. so i think there's there's something that we can there's an opportunity to contribute. advance yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, yeah sure 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 um i i mentioned in the brief introduction uh you as being a very resilient person and I remember very well uh, I'm going to say it was 2002 or 2003 you may correct me but we ran into each other on the street in, uh, in New York on 2nd uh, Avenue if I remember correctly and you told me you were ill um, and you, you had a, a run with cancer um, uh, you came out of it and 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 for many years um i think took good care of yourself but it was always lurking in the background and now it's come back so you're somebody who has faced extraordinary personal challenges um can you talk to us a little bit about and and those challenges have mm -hmm. have led you quite recently to to leave the department earlier than we would have wished can you talk to us a little bit about um, the first experience and 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 beating it for so long, and how that has shaped your outlook on your life, on your priorities, on um, relationships with your family, and and um, and how it's changed you? Yeah. So my. I first had um, cancer in 1998, okay. and it was breast cancer, stage one. Uh, because of my age and the family background, they treated it quite aggressively. So uh, that was, say, June, July, August, 98. I was supposed to go on posting to Geneva, and at the time, I was determined that this wasn't going to change my life. Mm. So I ended up doing the treatment, moving to Geneva at the same time, starting a new job, all this over a space of three, four months. Mm. And so the people in Geneva were just fabulous. You mm. know, they, the driver would, like, take me to my chemotherapy appointment, and people were 
were really understanding. It was it was good. Um, so that was kind of finished in '98. I had a long. My family had a long series of health issues. My two sisters had breast cancer immediately after I did. Uh, my father had a bit of lung cancer, and then my mother had ovarian cancer, mm. and she'd had breast cancer before. So we had right. kind of five years of cancer, and then my mother died. My father died, and then my mother died. So it was a pretty tough time. So I ended up, at that point, I was in New York. Cross-posted from Cross-posted, yeah. yeah. And in a bit of a existential crisis. Right. And at the time... I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, um, but I... Did you take time off? Did you... No, I didn't. And that, I think, is one of the lessons that I've learned, is that I really should have taken the time off. When I first got sick, I should have taken right. a year off and then just, you know, spend my time recovering, getting strong, rather than trying to push through it, because in the end, it was a job. It could have waited a sure. year. Sure. It wasn't any big thing, and I could have spent more time with my family because really that's kind of what, at the end of that, that's what came out of this was then it was, for me, my family is incredibly mm. important, and uh, they're all in Saskatchewan, so that's right. why I moved back there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, look, you know, there's, there's um, you, you, you have just an extraordinary personal story we share this Western uh, Westernness that's always been special uh, between us. Um, you have made a tremendous contribution. Uh, some of some of it you've listed in terms of your multilateral work. I know from our common um, UN friends just how uh, successful a home you were in uh, in Vietnam, and I had the pleasure of of uh, visiting you in, uh, and staying with you, actually, in, in uh, Guatemala, briefly. Um, a real loss that you have, uh, you've left the, the department, but you've obviously taken the right decision for, for you and your family back in Saskatchewan. And so we wish you all the very best. Thank you very much. Okay. okay. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion. If you have feedback or suggestions for future topics or guest speakers, please send David an email. Nous espérons que vous avez apprécié la discussion d'aujourd'hui. Si vous avez des commentaires ou des suggestions concernant de sujets futurs ou de nouveaux conférenciers, veuillez envoyer un courriel à David. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of The GAC Files. Merci d'avoir écouté le balado et nous espérons que vous vous joindrez à nous pour le prochain épisode des dossiers d'AMC.